Welcome to the Valleybrook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current series, Be Rich. Scripture says that the way to be rich is by giving, serving, and showing God's love. This series will explore what the Bible says about this and how God wants us to respond. And along the way, we'll look at some foundational principles for being rich. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, welcome again to Valleybrook. We're glad you're here. We're beginning a new series today called Be Rich, Love, Serve, Give. So let me start with a story. In his book, Tuesdays with Maury, Mitch Albom writes about his relationship with his sociology professor, Maury Schwartz. And it began on the first day of his freshman year of college. It started like this. Album, Mitch Album, here. Now, do you go by Mitch or Mitchell? My friends call me Mitch. Then I'll call you Mitch because I hope by the end of this semester that you will consider me your friend. And so began an unlikely friendship that would bring two men separated by almost four decades in age together as friends for a semester of Sociology 101. It was a friendship that would dramatically impact both student and teacher in profound ways that they could never have imagined on that first day of class. As a freshman at Brandeis University, Mitch Album became enthralled not simply by sociology, but by the vibrancy with which his professor conveyed it. In fact, Mitch was so inspired by Professor Schwartz, he registered for a class with him every semester thereafter. And in turn, the professor asked that the student call him a more endearing term, coach. Upon graduating from the university, the student gave coach a leather briefcase as a token of his appreciation for all he had learned about life from his teacher. Coach gave Mitch a hug and then a final assignment. He said, promise me you'll stay in touch. I promise, say it in a sentence. I promise I'll stay in touch with you, coach. So Mitch made the promise, and then he broke it every day for almost two decades. Graduation was followed in rapid succession by an opportunity to begin a career writing about sports. Mitch excelled became an award-winning journalist, an ESPN broadcaster, a daily radio show host, and a prolific writer. Like so many of us, seldom did Mitch look around at the abundant gifts he received, and even less frequently did he pause to celebrate and thank those who guided him there. But that professional spirit slowed enough that one Friday night, he sat on the couch, flipped on the television, and stumbled into watching the television show Nightline. The host of Nightline, Ted Koppel, was sharing the story of how a seemingly ordinary professor with a terrible fatal diagnosis of amyotropic lateral sclerosis, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, could remain so positive, so generous, so alive. 
Mitch was overcome with emotion when Ted Koppel shared the name of the professor from Brandeis University, Maury Schwartz. Mitch watched the interview stunned and saddened. The following morning, he tracked down the phone number and called his own old friend. When Maury answered, Mitch awkwardly said, I don't know if you remember me. My name is Mitch Albin. Even though he was dying with ALS, he still exuded life. And Maury responded, why didn't you call me coach? The following Tuesday, Mitch flew to visit with his favorite teacher at his home in Newton, Massachusetts. And after a long visit recounting the life both of them had lived in the previous 18 years since their last visit, Mitch asked if he could come back and visit him the next week. And he kept his promise. And he continued to visit every Tuesday for the rest of Coach's life. In one of their final visits, the two friends sat together. Coach lying motionless in bed, struggling for breath, but at peace with it. The young journalist, observing how generous the teacher was with everyone who came into his room and struggling to understand why. Coach, he asked, why are you so generous, so present with everyone? How do you keep giving to all of us even though you are the one dying? Maury looked over at him and responded tenderly, taking makes me feel like I'm dying. And there was a significantly long pause because the simple act of breathing now required significant effort. And then Maury added, but giving, giving makes me feel like I'm living. And then he added, giving is living. Realizing that the end was near and the anxiety that Maury had about leaving significant medical expenses for his family, Mitch had an idea. He said, what if we distilled your life lessons that you shared with me into a book? Neither of the men were sure it would sell, but they figured out, why not give it a try? Even with Mitch's media connections and his significant platform, every publisher turned down this seemingly dark, depressing, tragic story of an old teacher dying of ALS. But finally, a single publisher, Doubleday, agreed to take the gamble, printing 20,000 copies. In the years that followed, the book called Tuesdays with Maury has become the most popular memoir of all time and has been translated into 45 languages and sold more than 14 million copies. Remember what Maury Schwartz said, giving is living. Today we're starting a four-week series called Be Rich, and as I said, it's got the tagline, Love, Serve, Give. To enhance this series, I'm going to encourage everybody. In fact, I'm going to challenge you to pick up a copy of a book by Pastor Andy Stanley called How to Be Rich. It's not what you have. It's what you do with what you have. Now, we have copies of the book here in our cafe at Valley Brook, so pick one up while they last. But if we run out, 
or if you're watching online, you can get a physical copy or a digital copy wherever you purchase books. Now, if you're thinking this is a series about stewardship, financial stewardship, and about giving money, while that will come up occasionally during this series, the focus is on a two-word command that the Apostle Paul told to his young leader named Timothy, and he told him that he needs to teach this in his church. What was that two-word command? Be rich. Now, I bet you didn't know that followers of Jesus are commanded to be rich, but they are. Now, of course, this command to be rich does not follow the obsession that many people have with accumulating wealth. Let's be clear, God's word is not anti-wealth or anti-money. It's just that in God's worldview, in a biblical worldview that we see in Scripture, wealth is not a goal, it's a tool to be used for God's purposes. The scripture that we're going to look at today and come back to throughout this series is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and this is what it says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, there's a lot going on in those three verses, but today we're just going to focus on the first verse, which tells us to put our hope in God. So let me go back and read verse 17 again, and then I'll address a common objection that people make to this verse. So here's the verse. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So Paul tells Timothy to command those who are rich in this present world. Now, I suspect many of us are thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. When many of us think of rich people, we we think of the people you'd find on Forbes' list of the richest people in the world. People like Elon Musk or Melinda French Gates or Warren Buffett or Oprah Winfrey. We don't think we're rich. We don't feel rich. But as Pastor Andy Stanley writes in his book, How to Be Rich, the truth is, we're already rich. No matter where you stand on the economy, we live in the richest time of the richest nation in history. In fact, if you can read, you're automatically rich by global standards. And it's not just because you can read and have access to books, but it's because you've been given the individual freedom to do so not to mention the time to read. That's not the case everywhere, and it certainly hasn't been the case throughout history. For example, he says, in our Western culture today, we observe a five-day work week. Think about what that means. Most people have to work only five days in order to have seven days' worth of food, shelter, clothing, and health care. We take it for granted, but that's unique in our little window in history. 
And it's still not the case everywhere. What's more, there are households of three or four or more people that send only one person out into the workplace to earn money. And with that one person's earnings, he writes, the entire family can amass enough money in five days to give them food and shelter for seven days. In many cultures, that is inconceivable. Outside of work, that leaves at least 50 hours per week for nothing but leisure. Most people in the world can only imagine such luxuries. Now, that's put some perspective in what it means to be rich in this world, in this day and time. But if that doesn't convince you, consider this. If you're a family of four with a total household income of $75,000, you have more wealth than almost 90% of the rest of the people in the world. Now, with a global population of over 8 billion people, that means you have more wealth than 7.2 billion people in the world. So I hope we've established that whether or not we feel rich compared to the overwhelming majority of the rest of the world, we are rich. And here is what God's word tells us. Don't put your hope in wealth. That's right. Don't put your hope in money. Don't put your hope in what the culture says to put your hope in. Paul says, put your hope in God. Now, Jesus used stronger words than Paul. Jesus called putting our hope in wealth idolatry. He said, you can't worship two gods at one time. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. So what does it mean to put our hope in God's word? It's not just believing in God. It's following God in his word. It's being a disciple of Jesus. You see, you can believe in Jesus but not follow him. But Jesus' call on our lives is a call to follow him and his teaching. And it's a call not just to follow some of his teaching that we feel comfortable with, but a call to follow all of his teaching. Jesus was speaking to people one day and asked, why do you keep on saying that I am your Lord when you refuse to do what I say? Then he went on to say, if people do what he teaches, they're building their lives on a rock-solid foundation. But if they don't do what, is, what he teaches, when the storms of life come to life, they won't have the foundation they need, and their lives will collapse. So put your hope in God means to believe in and to follow Jesus and his teaching. Now, with that in mind, one of Jesus' most important teachings was on what the greatest commandment was. And Jesus taught that the most important commandment is to love God. You see, when he was asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Loving God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our strength, with all of our minds is loving God with all that we are and all that we have. Loving God with all that we are and all that we have is 
putting our hope in God. Loving God with all that we are and all that we have is being generous with our affection toward God. It's being rich toward God. It's worshiping God above all things and all people in our lives. If our relationship with God is the most important relationship in our lives, it will show in how we order our lives. But we all know there are things that compete for our attention, that can draw us away from loving God with all that we are. For instance, researchers have asked incoming college students about their goals in life for decades. In 1967, Approximately 85% of college students said that they were strongly motivated to develop a meaningful philosophy of life. By 2015, the number one goal was to make money. So if there are many things that compete for our attention and that can draw us away from loving God with all that we are, thus we have to be intentional about loving God about making sure we love him with all that we are and all that we have. Being intentional about loving God will mean trusting him by embracing his will and by embracing his way for our lives. That's putting our hope in God. And that means we will be generous in our love of God, giving him our time, our talents, and our treasure to glorify his name and to build his kingdom. And loving God with all that we are also means that we will love others. We will love the other people in our lives and in this world. When Jesus taught what the greatest commandment was, he said it was loving God with all that we are and all that we have. But he concluded that saying with this phrase, and love your neighbor as yourself. While Jesus' conversation about the greatest commandment can be found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it does not appear in the Gospel of John, but Jesus does talk about a commandment that's very important in the Gospel of John. This is what he tells his followers in that Gospel. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus says this to his disciples then, and we know that he's saying it to us also today. He's telling those first disciples and every generation of disciples since then that the evidence that will demonstrate whether or not we are his disciple is that people will see that we are loving other people. I think it's important to note that when Jesus says love your neighbor and love one another, that means love all people. That means everybody without exception. Last September, David Brooks published an article entitled How America Got Mean. He writes that over the past eight years, he became obsessed with the question, why have Americans become so mean to others? 
And though he's not a Christ follower, he concludes that we have become a culture devoid of moral education. And so generations are growing up in a world that is morally inarticulate and self-centered. But it's not just the younger generation that's being influenced by this morally inarticulate and self-centered culture. Because like it or not, we are all immersed in this culture and it can seep into our worldview very subtly. So that means we have to be vigilant and put our hope in God by following him and by loving him and by loving others. That's why we read God's word and embrace the moral truths of Scripture. And that's why we encourage one another to embrace those truths. And obviously, that's why we teach our children and our grandchildren those truths from Scripture. And of course, whenever we teach, whenever we share these things, we do them all in a loving manner because God loves us. So when I started this message, if you remember, I told you about Maury Schwartz and the message that he had, that giving is living. Every one of us has been loved by God over and over and over. God's never-ending love for us is far more generous than anything we can comprehend. We are rich beyond measure in God's love. And if we have put our hope in God, we understand how rich in God's love we are. And if we know we are rich in God's love, then we know we're not supposed to hoard that love. We're supposed to share it. We're supposed to be richly generous toward others and love them the way that God loves each of us. So be rich. Start living by giving your love to God and others as we are called to as followers of Jesus Christ. So let me get practical. I want to encourage you to go deeper in this series of messages, and I want to encourage you to do that by getting a copy of Pastor Andy Stanley's book, How to Be Rich, and I want to encourage you to do that by, by either joining a life group or finding another Christ follower to study that book with. And if you have questions about that, please send us an email at connect at valleybrook.cc. Being a disciple of Jesus also means handling worldly wealth in godly ways. And so one of the things that we've done over the years at Valleybrook is we've tried to teach biblical money management principles. And one of the ways that we've done that is we've come alongside of a ministry that created a course called Financial Peace University. Now, we're not offering a class here at church during this season, but you can find virtual classes that fit your schedule. And if you go to our church resource page, you will find that and you'll be taught biblical principles about how to manage money and how to get out of debt. We encourage you to do that because we don't want money and worldly wealth to be a stumbling block in your life and in your relationship with God. So be rich by loving God and loving others. Let me pray for you. Father, as we've gathered here today and as we've looked at your word, we've seen how we are not supposed to put our hope in worldly wealth, 
something that the culture would tell us to do, but we're supposed to put our hope in you. And so, Lord, we want to do that. We want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, loving you and loving others as you have loved us. So I pray that you would work in each of our lives to understand that and that you would guide us and direct us and help us be the men and women of God that you desire for us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.